Season 2, Chapter 5 Devotion A man consists of the faith that is in him. Whatever his faith is, he is. Bhagavad Gita Devotion It was early, the hour just before the dawn, the hour that taunts and teases, imploring you to act, to do something. But there is nothing you can do, and so you fret and you wait. Clyde had passed the night in his chair with his loaded shotgun straddled across his lap. He had barely finished one cigarette when another was lit. He would not let his guard down, not for one minute, not for one second. He kept his tired eyes glued to the door. I'll rest when I'm dead, he thought. He knew the morning would come eventually, and that he would have the chance to set things right, to do what he should have done years ago. I should have drowned the boy, made it look like an accident. But these are the impotent thoughts of the guilt-ridden when they are miles away from action, just harmless drivel that would have no impact on Clyde's devotion. More than anything, Clyde did want to set things right with his God, to be at peace, But Abram had needs, and Clyde was his father. What else was he supposed to do? My son walks with the devil, and I am cursed to walk with my son. The ice storm had finally ended, and it was at last calm outside. Clyde could feel the vibration of the sanding truck as it lumbered down Main Street. He took comfort in the low hum that shook the thin walls of his apartment. It meant that someone else was awake, that he wasn't completely alone. At 8.45, he would walk down Main Street. The church was three blocks down and then one block up. He would meet the others in the parking lot. Then they would drive to the farm together. But that was almost four hours from now. He lit another cigarette. The shadow had stumbled out from the rubble and on to the frozen lake. He was still burning, his jacket and hair releasing trails of smoke as he moved further away from the heap of history that had once been Faye's home. His blood was thickening again. He could feel it curdle and pool deep within the nooks and crannies of every joint and ligament. He had not been able to complete his attack. The call had not been answered, and the pain was relentless. He looked down at his hands. They were charred and black, his fingers fused together like gnarled hooks. He studied them, repeatedly turning his palms up and down. I used to be beautiful, he lamented. The shadow had not been prepared for her. An old lady should have been easy to overtake, but somehow she had been prepared for him. His whole life he had been surrounded by the weak. His mother, his father, everyone around him had been afraid to fight back, except for her. He stopped in the center of the lake and watched the dawn as it pushed the night sky westward. The balsam trees that lined the water's edge were watching him their great green branches heaving under the heavy-weighted sadness of the old woman's passing. This grief pleased the shadow, and so he plopped down like a petulant child, 
happy to extend his unwanted visit just a little bit longer. Abram laughed, softly at first, and then louder, cackling and hooting as he threw himself back into the snow and arched his spine. He grabbed at the pure white of winter with his burnt claws, delighting in this act of vandalism. From above, he looked like a spider, spewing ash and evil as he wriggled and gyrated. The shadow was not welcome here, in this sacred space, and it was all too much to watch. The wind screamed past the shadow from across the frozen water, slamming into the cabin's embers and kicking up sparks in helpless frustration. It whirred up and around the shadow before racing back across the ice, howling in despair. And when the sun rose to take its first glimpse of the devastation below, it bled reams of red and gold across the sky. Abram could feel the hatred of a million eyes upon him. He stopped laughing and sat up. In that moment, the wind returned, slapping and beating against the shadow like a grieving mother desperate to turn back time. Abram was annoyed now, and so he held his arms up into the air, and he hollered back with equal resolve. Here I am, and I am unstoppable! Our Lady of the Lake Episcopal Church was the rendezvous point. And when Ed and Dr. Karen arrived, Clyde was waiting in the parking lot, smoking. The old farmer carried nothing with him except the courage needed to get him through the morning and his nine-millimeter pistol. Standing there in the cold and the gray, he looked like broken glass. Clyde nodded solemnly at Ed and the doctor. Any pressure to make small talk was quickly relieved as Sheriff Randall turned his SUV into the parking lot. We gotta take my cruiser because it can't stay here, the sheriff stated calmly. The other three were happy for some direction and, within minutes, the SUV was loaded and headed west toward the little white farmhouse on the hill and the dreaded barn. Clyde sat up front, his frame so small and hunched that he was barely visible from the back seat. His eyes remained fixed downward. "'Did you get any sleep last night, Sheriff?' Amelia asked from her spot in the back, already knowing the answer. "'Nah,' he confirmed softly. "'Besides, sleep's overrated.' Theirs was a quiet contest of stoicism, each working to protect the other from the added burden of more pain." Or worry. The main route through town marked the line where the sanding crews had yet to venture. As soon as they turned north, the sheriff's Ford Explorer slowed to a crawl, its studded tires clicking loudly against the icy road like the chattering of teeth. Two hundred miles south, Boston's Monday morning foot traffic was about to find a woman's body. The homicide detectives would need extra time to track down her next of kin, for Samantha D'Angelo had been thorough in her efforts to erase all ties to her father. That very morning, Ed had turned off his cell phone to save battery. And why not? The only person who ever called was seated next to him in the back seat of the sheriff's cruiser. All of this meant that Ed was on borrowed time, time that would allow him to function to protect his boss. 
Glad we didn't take my sedan, Ed offered, trying to lighten the moon with a different subject. Driving that thing on the ice is like trying to steer a pie plate. Nobody answered. Seconds later, it became clear what was on everyone's mind. As sheriff, I'll be the one to go inside the area, the one to give the first injection, Nathan announced. Clyde's head jerked left suddenly. No, this is all because of me. Clyde's eyes were vacant and glossy. He growled defiantly. I told you at the meeting, he's my son. Dr. Karen interrupted. The only person qualified to administer this medication, the medication that I am responsible for, is me. It's not up for debate. Plus, there will be plenty of other things to do. Without waiting for a response, she added, Nathan, I'll need you to stay close. Can you do that? I can, he answered, knowing better than to argue with Amelia Karen. When the moment came, he would take control. The SUV fell silent again, and the road narrowed. They were getting closer. Ed looked out his window toward his right, toward the endless rows of dormant apple trees reaching up to touch a red sky. God, they look like headstones, he said, immediately embarrassed by how fearful his voice sounded. Hey, Doc, the sheriff asked without turning his head. This the first time you've been up here? Yeah, first time. Same goes for Ed, she answered. And then Clyde scoffed through clenched teeth. I hate this place now. More silence. Sometime later, the sheriff's SUV lurched upward, finally resting in front of the farmhouse. The interior of the vehicle exploded with a cacophony of sound as seatbelts unclipped and breathing quickened. Amelia swallowed hard, pushing down the logic that was sure to change her mind if she let it. Get your big girl pants on and get to work, she told herself. The vehicle was barely in park before she was out and opening the back hatch. That's it. Keep moving forward. This stuff can't really stay cold for long, so we need to work fast. The doctor's commanding voice came from years of crisis management and leading others. But today, her knees felt weak and her heart was racing. Fake it till you make it, she thought. Maybe they won't notice. Ed and Nathan grabbed the gear from the back while Amelia adjusted her backpack. It was loaded with her medical supplies, and she wanted it close. When she looked up, both men were staring at her. She smiled weakly and nodded. Finally, Nathan stepped forward and handed her the small white box, the one holding the fifty preloaded syringes of Diprovan. She had prepared each dose with enough serum to anesthetize five hundred pounds of flesh. She was taking no chances. Okay, let's get this done, she announced. She had stopped smiling. The driveway was indistinguishable from the rest of the yard. All of it was a smooth desert of deep white, and it stretched on indefinitely in all directions. The recent ice storm had provided them with an advantage. They would have no trouble walking across the crusted snowpack. And so they did. Once over the snowbank, they formed a single file, with Nathan up front and the doctor directly behind him. Amelia was relieved to see that Nathan was in uniform and armed. Nobody noticed that Clyde had dropped back. 
The house was frozen and barren like the landscape, and its black windows seemed to be watching with some interest at the unexpected activity outside. And the lady who lived here, Nate? Any updates? Amelia asked. Still working on that one, Doc, he answered back stiffly, not wanting to say out loud what he was now suspecting. Clyde White coughed nervously as he caught up to take his position in the back of the line. At that moment, he caught his reflection in the kitchen window. The empty farmhouse reflected back the image of something grotesque and crackled like the face of a gargoyle. It was the ugly face of truth. For Clyde had not protected the woman from Abram. As usual, he had done nothing to stop the inevitable. Instead, he had traded action for hope, hope that Abram would leave her alone and magically just get better. He had chosen to look away, all the while knowing that Abram would do whatever he wanted and that the woman had been in grave danger from the moment she took possession of the property. Clyde swallowed a mouthful of phlegm and self-loathing and then continued to follow the others toward the barn. With the massive barn door before them, the sheriff turned back and placed his finger on his lips. There could be no talking from this point on. He motioned for them to cover their faces and then rolled the door open just wide enough for the four of them to slip inside. Silence became nearly impossible as the putrid stench of decomposition and sulfur grabbed at their noses and mouths. It burned their eyes and burrowed deep into their lungs. Dr. Karen had smelled death before, many times, but this was something different, and it was terrifying. They choked and coughed in agony. Ed shouldn't be here, Dr. Karen thought while she watched him spit and gag. As soon as he pulled himself together, she whispered, her own voice rough and raspy from coughing, Please, <clears throat> go back and wait in the cruiser. This is <clears throat> way outside the scope of your job, and I can't have you here. But Ed looked straight ahead, as if she hadn't spoken at all. He wasn't going anywhere. Chunks of gray morning could be seen through the cracks in the walls. The barn's enormous interior was now in plain view for everyone to see. And there, deep in the center of the barn, stood the tower. It was nearly eight feet high, each bale tightly staggered and stacked for added strength. Clyde had explained the structure to them earlier, and so they knew that each wall was three bales thick. Clyde had said that he wanted to provide Abram with a warm, safe place to stay until he got better. But seeing the structure now gave Dr. Karen a very different impression. Whatever was wrong with Abram, Clyde most certainly was the enabler. Amelia whispered in disbelief, This is overkill. A crypt. Ed touched her shoulder, hoping to reassure her, but Amelia took the opportunity to whisper a warning. Keep your eyes on the old man. Clyde was up ahead now, pointing down towards the ground. There, at the base of the hay tower, was an opening barely three feet wide and twenty-eight inches high. The doctor nodded before dropping softly to her knees directly in front of the rectangular opening. Its blackness seemed to be reaching out, trying to pull her in. Don't think about it. Just do your job. She placed the box of Diprovan down onto the floor of the barn. 
Then she pulled off her backpack and her parka. Like a true assistant, Ed was there to grab her coat. Nathan studied the size of the opening, and then he too removed his jacket. The idea that Amelia would be crawling into that opening head first and without any protection had him feeling sick, and he wasn't the only one. Clyde was away from them now, just beyond the reach of the sheriff, and he was pacing and wringing his hands frantically. Amelia nodded up at Ed and then motioned over to Clyde. She had the feeling that Clyde was planning something, something different. As soon as she turned back to her work, Clyde was upon her, both hands grabbing at her shoulders. Before Ed could stop him, Clyde had dropped down to his knees. His head was bowed, and he was sobbing. Amelia held out her hand, motioning for Ed and Nathan to hold their position. Slowly, the old farmer raised his eyes, looking directly at Amelia. She watched as tears formed and fell, working their way down his ancient face like rain through a dried creek bed. Ed and Nathan hovered just beside him, and Amelia held her breath, the three of them now very worried by Clyde's erratic behavior. Finally, Clyde shook his head. No. She wasn't going in there. No, he nodded again. Amelia exhaled slowly. Gently, Clyde took three syringes from Amelia's hand, and then he patted her knee kindly. He tucked two of the syringes into his coat pocket. The other he placed across his mouth, holding it steady with his teeth like a knife. He turned and was gone. His companions watched in stunned silence as the tiny man disappeared into the dark hole, the bottom of his work boots flashing briefly before it was over. In the end, Clyde had decided. The darkness was watching. He's coming inside. Do you feel him? He's coming for you. Wake up! Wake and protect what is yours. But Abram did not move. He was tired and unfulfilled. He felt only pain. Wake now and kill the old man. He has served his purpose. Abram's body throbbed and he was drenched in sweat. But his eyes did open. Once inside, Clyde's first priority was to get up and off of his stomach. The darkness made him vulnerable enough, but coming in head first meant that, for several seconds, he would be face down and unable to react. As soon as he reached the other end of the tunnel, he used his elbows to hoist himself up and inside. They screamed back in revolt. His hips and knees joined the protest with waves of piercing pain. Clyde ignored all of it, moving again only enough to position himself directly in front of the opening, between himself and the others. He felt the soft thud of something hitting his left boot. It was the sheriff's flashlight. Nathan had rolled it into him. He reached back and grabbed it with his left hand. The air was noxious and humid, making it difficult to breathe. He took a moment to let his heart settle, and then 
he turned on the light. Devotion Written and performed by Bridget Emmons Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Main Stories or visit my website at BridgetEmmons.com Thanks for listening.